Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lomboss. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in a frozen Mardi Gras free New Orleans. This is the mm. few days after Carnival um, where there was no Carnival. Did y'all do anything to mark the occasion this year? Absolutely not. Nothing? No. Of all the years to cancel, this was a good one. Yeah, the weather was brutal. Yeah. I thought I might go outside and like... I don't know, just take the dog for a walk along the bayou, like maybe wear something resembling a costume. But um, once that weather rolled in, I just shriveled up on the couch and watched movies all day. Same here. Yeah, I watched a bunch of movies on Mardi Gras Day. It was pretty much it. Good good excuse to stay inside when it's 30 degrees outside. Yeah, I like wrap myself in a fuzzy blanket and then a comforter where I couldn't move my arms or anything. And I just lied there watching the TV. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what have y'all been watching? I guess the two I really wanted to touch on. I watched this movie. It came out the year I was born, 1986, called The Hitcher with Rudger Hauer. Didn't Brittany bring this up on the show recently? Oh, God, yes. Like the, the young kind of like valet guy that gets terrorized by that hitchhiker. Right. Yeah. And okay. I know you had brought it up a while ago and I, I caught it the other day. And I, I guess what I was expecting was like, it's going to be this slow burn, like cat and mouse game. And it pretty much just like in the first five minutes, Rudger Hauer is this like psychopathic hitchhiker threatens to kill this guy and the guy narrowly escapes. And then the rest of the movie is Rudger Hauer playing this insane person, just murdering. I think he kills like maybe 30 people throughout Holy this shit. film. It's just it's like, crazy. it was bad shit. Crazy. I'm like, and it's like gruesome shit that they don't shy away from. Like, I still think about that scene with the family. Oh yeah. He murders a family. He murders the entire sheriff force of the small town <laughs> right then he like kills these guys in a helicopter then he, he like just keeps murdering people and i kind of really dug the story they tell in this where he's murdering these people he kind of frames this kid for it mm-hmm. and he keeps pushing the kid further and further to the edge and all he wants is for this kid to kill him to basically bring out the killer in him and so he keeps escalating the violence and I just loved how over the top this thing was like he literally, he frames him for these murders. The kid gets locked up and then he wakes up the next day and his cell is open. He comes out and the entire police force has been slaughtered. And then he's basically like, all right, well, what are we going to do now? Like you're free. Let's keep this going. And he just keeps escalating it. And I don't know. I thought it was pretty wild. Yeah. It sounds gnarly. The only thing I'd, sort of wish the movie had with just more Rudger Hauer. There's like a big chunk in the middle where he isn't really around. Um, Anytime he's on screen, it's just insane. Yeah. He has such like a strong, dark charisma. And uh, yeah, this movie took me by surprise. So that was a good recommendation, Brittany. Nice. Yeah. I, I still think about like how surprising, how surprisingly good it is. For like a film that could be boring, where it could just be like two dudes in the desert, just, you know, chasing after each other, whatever. And it's 100% not like that. Yeah, I 
I thought, it was, like I said, it was going to be this slow burn, and mm-hmm. it was not. It was very high octane, and there's especially one part towards the end where he does something that's so horrific. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm the, talking about? Um, the stretch. Stretching, the stretch, pulling. It, yeah. Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> it's like, and I'm like, damn. Yes. That, that really took me back. So anyway, if you're in the mood for like a nasty little high octane thriller from the eighties, like the hitcher <laughs> is a good, is a good pick. Another movie I wanted to highlight. I had a coworker. I was talking to, we were talking about spinal tap and he recommended this movie called fear of a black hat, which he basically was like, this is like a spinal tap about like early nineties, late eighties hip hop. And that's exactly what it is. It's shot in the same mockumentary style or kind of like a Christopher Guest sort of thing. And um, it is just really, really funny. You could tell it was made earnestly. Like it was made by someone that genuinely loves hip hop, but is poking fun at it and kind of, you know, the misogyny, the guns, sort of taking it down a peg, but still as kind of a fan. And then I was surprised to find out that it was done by the same guy that did Tales from the Hood. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, and he's also the main actor in this one as well. And those are really the only... He might have one or two other movies outside of that, but that's pretty much it, or like Fear of a Black Hat and Tales from the Hood. And I, you know, I love Tales from the Hood, and I really dug Fear of a Black Hat, too. I think it does a really good job of spoofing hip-hop culture. So I, I would definitely check that one out if you haven't seen it. And um, the last movie I saw that I really, really liked was this French movie from, I think, like, 92 called The Heart in Winter. And the way it was described on this website I follow was basically a love triangle where one of the people is not in love with anybody. And that is essentially what plays out. It's about this these two guys who the one guy is this really passionate craftsman with violins. He like restores violins. He, you know, works with artists to set up their violins. He just very passionate and astute about music and art. And then the face of the company is his business partner who ends up dating this woman who's a violin virtuoso. And it was such a unique romance film in that it's basically about two people discovering that they don't want to be together. But the film is very, you know, it has violin, so it's very sweeping and sensual, and it's French. You know, they talk about love and passion, and this guy is so passionate about violin, and you have this violin virtuoso in love with him. And his character is essentially someone that cannot love. He is really just into like his craftsmanship, but not into intimate uh, personal relationships. And it's them kind of navigating that. And I've really never seen a romance film that basically dealt with someone that's, I don't want to say asexual, but he's someone that's just not capable and not interested in love. And they all communicate openly about it and they're trying to like work through it. And I just thought it was like a really beautiful, interesting movie about a topic you don't really ever see 
And I know that there's lots of people out there that feel that way, that they can't have intimate relationships, that they're not interested in them, but they're passionate about other things in their life. Mm -hmm. And again, and it's very French, lots of intellectual conversation, lots of beautiful music. So I don't know. I, I thought it was really touching and an interesting subject matter that I don't see very often. So yeah, A Heart in Winter, too, um, I would definitely recommend. So yeah, those were the, the big three that stuck out to me this past week. What, um, what about you guys? Like, like y'all, I spent my uh, Mardi Gras watching movies. And I watched a few. So I'll mention like two movies that I talked about that pretty much everyone hated. So, of course, I wanted to see them. <laughs> the first one actually came out this year, The Little Things. Is that the one where um, Jared Leto keeps getting, like, nominations for awards playing yes. like a serial killer? Okay. <laughs> yes. So, um, it kind of it came out recently, and it was on HBO Max for, like, a limited time. So, I kind of jumped on it. And a lot of people have just been ragging on this. And that's the only thing I knew about it was, okay, Jared Leto was apparently really good in it and everyone hates it. And it's a neo-noir like crime thriller. So I, I mean, that to me is, is just awesome. I love movies like that. It looks like a um, David Fincher, like knockoff movie. And we're talking about Fincher later today. So that's good timing. Yes. Oh, it could have been the segue at the end. Yeah, well, maybe so. <laughs> Should we flip-flop this? No, I mean, no, you're good. You can edit it if you we want. We cannot morph our lives around the segues, you know? Okay. We can't, like, I mean, let God, them dictate it, our behavior. It just feels so right to do that. And, you know, I liked it. Uh, a lot of the criticism is, oh, this has been done before. It wasn't that special. And it doesn't take that much to wow me, I guess, but... It's uh, basically a movie where you've got your buddy cop duo um, played by Rami Malek and Denzel Washington. And both of these cops are on the on the hunt for this serial killer that's kind of terrorizing Los Angeles in like early eight. I'm sorry, late 80s, early 90s. And their main suspect is Jared Leto. And. Jared Leto in this film is so gross. Like he's got this beer belly. He just looks like greasy and just dirty, super, super creep. Like if you could define what a creep would look like, it would be him in this movie. And he knows that the cops are like onto, onto him, but he just like fucks with them the whole time. Like, I don't know. Like the way he acts is like, he'll say things that will kind of, lead them to suspect that he's the killer and like he'll get hard-ons while he's looking at crime scene photos and stuff like that and he's like obsessed with true crime and he lives in this like little apartment and he like kind of creeps out to go to like seedy strip clubs and stuff at night but there's like no evidence that they really have on him other than you know he's a creep and he collects, like, you know, memorabilia from this, like, serial killers, you know, newspaper clippings and stuff like that. So they're just kind of, like, really focused on him. And you can't, like, what I like about this movie is it's unsettling where you're like, is he the killer or is he not? Like, there's a lot of things pointing to him and there's a lot of things that aren't pointing to him. And the movie never tells you. 
And I think that pissed a lot of people off is it doesn't tell you like this guy for sure was the killer. Um, You just have to kind of figure it out. And there's like this, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but there is a crazy ending that kind of makes the, makes it even more unsettling and leaves you even more confused. But I kind of like movies like that sometimes um, if, if, if it's done well, where it just kind of keeps you thinking. And then it started, you know, helping me think of like, you know, obviously cops, catch the wrong guys all the time (laughs) and um that's my where my thought is always like I'm always like the cops probably always have the wrong guy so I kind of went in that direction in this movie but I think like somebody coming in that's like man you know cops rule and they always know what they're doing they'll kind of go in a different direction I saw the trailer for that and like the trailer actually really intrigued me but it Seem to be hinting that, like Denzel Washington has something nefarious going on. Is it? Yeah, he does. Okay. Well, I, I was kind of pulled in by that because I do love those pulpy sort of detective stories that have some crazy twist. Yeah. At the end, so I you'll like it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out. And all and the acting from everyone is really good. Like no one sucks. It's just it's a good movie. I guess people are just tired of Jared Leto acting <laughs> like a creep. Oh yeah, in general, that, that's just kind of his thing now. Now I feel like this redeemed him as like his creep acting, where he sucks at it. Like all that Joker crap that he did previously. <laughs> like this, like. <laughs> you know, like this kind of redeemed Jared Leto for me. And I'm like, he's kind of good as just a big weirdo. He was horrible and he did a good job of being horrible. I do like that he has that pretty boy syndrome where he like has to look ugly in every movie he's in. So mm-hmm. he'll be taken seriously. <laughs> um, I saw this like terrible nineties version of the honeymoon killers movie. Like they did like a, a remake of it with him. It was the early two thousands, but he plays like the uh, middle-aged like slob. Uh, like main character guy uh, and to give him like a pot belly and make him bald in it. Uh, mm, so he's been doing awesome. this for a long time now. Uh, just trying to be as gross as he possibly can. And I think maybe that's why I like that. Like when he does that kind of stuff, because I don't know, I guess like, you know, everyone's like, Oh, he's like this heartthrob. He's so hot, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I love that. He's just like disgusting <laughs> in all these movies. <laughs> Um, and it's like, in my mind, I'm like, he really wants to be this gross piece of shit. Like that's, can the world just let him be gross? Cause I think that's He's what living he wants. his truth. Yeah. Live in his truth. <laughs> and he can only do it on camera. Poor thing. So I watched the little things. Another movie I watched that a lot of people hated. It's also a more recent film, but it's the movie, um, Antebellum. It's on Hulu now. Um, so you don't have to pay for it. Which is what I do for like a lot of movies. I'm like, I'm just going to wait till it's free. Yeah, it was like 20 bucks to rent when it first came out last year. Mm-hmm. And then the reviews were like so viciously negative that um, I just kind of backed away from it. Yeah, same, same. But it was, you know, frozen Mardi Gras and <laughs> it was there. And I'm like, just do it, Brittany. And I will say, I don't know how to feel about it. Like, I feel like I watched it without a critical eye. And I just kind of threw it on there and watched it for like just it being a movie. And there was something about it that I'm like, hmm, like that just doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? Like how you watch a film sometimes you can't really pinpoint why it doesn't feel right. But basically, Antebellum starts out 
very intensely. Like the first half of the movie is you're, you know, on this plantation in the Confederacy, you've got horrible things happening to the slaves on this plantation. And it's this really gruesome look into like what slavery was. And Janelle Monet is one of the slaves on this plantation and her character in this part of the film, her name is Eden and she's trying to escape and she's trying to devise plans with the other slaves to like try to escape like all these, you know, Confederate douchebags. And there's a, a stopping point in the film, which like she's lying in bed in her, you know, slave quarters. And there is one of the sol- like, Confederate soldiers like kind of getting off from being on top of her where he's like obviously raping her and she's just like distraught. And then it flashes to Janelle Monet in modern times in this gorgeous like townhouse apartment with her husband and her child. And it's like at that point, I'm like, well, what what's going on here? Like, is she having these weird dreams? Is she being haunted? And um, like modern day Janelle Monet, she is like a famous author and she's very successful but like, I don't know, it's like, it, it kind of dives into like, her life, and nothing super weird happens. And then strange things start to happen. Like she has this very bizarre phone call with this like white Southern woman, who seems very devious. And there's like, uh, this little antebellum girl that looks like a ghost almost that appears in this like, elevator at the hotel she's staying at and the whole time you're kind of trying to figure out like what is happening is she being haunted is there some weird like time vortex portal or something like that like is it sci-fi is it not sci-fi like there's just a lot of questions and the ending has like an interesting twist that I'm not going to reveal obviously because that would defeat you know, the purpose of me talking about a movie that people should probably watch. But yeah, like, um, there's probably a lot to be said about it that I just like can't place my finger on because I didn't, like I said, I just didn't watch it with that critical eye. But some things felt kind of eh while I was watching it where I'm like, I don't know if this is right or, or not. And I want to think like, I mean, Janelle Monet is a brilliant woman and I don't think she would subject herself to something that, she, you know, I don't know. I don't know. The violence does seem like it's hard to stomach. That, that's one of the reasons I backed away from it. Just like It's very hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I have like my eyes closed for a lot of it. And a lot of the criticism that I've seen is like this movie. It's either are you a horror movie or are you a depiction into the horrors of slavery? You can't be both. And it tries to be both, and it just feels weird. I mean, something like Get Out, I guess, can you can tackle issues of race and be a genre film. I don't know. Like, did you get the sense it was more about the historical point it was trying to make or just trying to be a scary horror film? I think it was, like, trying to do both. And I think the fact that it was a horror film might have taken away from, like, the seriousness of, like, the topic at hand, which is, you know, like how black oppression still exists and how, you know, you go from this like period of slavery till now. And even though she was like super successful, this author, 
had this home, was wealthy. She still had to deal with a lot of oppression. And I kind of picked up on that, like, you know, obviously, like, oppression is still a thing. It didn't just go away because slavery went away. And I get that. But I think, like, I don't know, the film tried to be deep, (laughs) but it wasn't that deep. It wasn't that deep. And it has, like, a lot of black pain on camera. Right. Yeah, that's a tough combo. If Yeah, like, it feels weird seeing that kind of black torture in a horror film in that sense where if it was a movie like roots or something like that or like a or series or something like that i think it'd be different but not. i mean i didn't even watch 12 years a slave because it seemed like that was kind of the vibe of that one and that's like a prestigious like oscar movie yeah i know and it's one of those things like i think like for those who like don't have that education of like how horrible slavery truly was because it's not taught in schools. Then, yeah, I think that people need to see things like that, but not in antebellum, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> like, that's not the movie for it. So, yeah, it was it was okay. I just, like I said, it just feels like something feels like off about it. But just to lighten things up for my Mardi Gras Day movie marathon... I wanted to get into a comfort film, so I watched one of my favorite movies of all time, and that is the film Clifford, starring <laughs> Martin Short. And, you know, I every time I watch this movie, I'm like, it is so good, and it's so genuinely funny, and I will, like, just laugh until, like, I, you know, start peeing. He, oh, my God. Martin Short in that movie is one of the <laughs> most annoying... Yeah, I mean, in a good way, but just one of the most annoying characters ever created. And then, like, Char- what's his name? Charles Groding? Yeah. As the straight man who just, like... Charles Groding. My God, yeah. Just increasingly incensed and, just, like, murderously <laughs> angry by the end of the movie. And it does have that great climax where they go to that dinosaur theme park. Mm, um, dinosaur World? Dinosaur World, yeah. I'm Larry the Scary Rex. I'm a scary dinosaur. Yeah. I love all of that. Um, And this movie, like, I don't know, like, I quote it a lot. Like, every time someone goes to San Francisco, like, I try to reenact that scene where he's at the train station and he's like, San Francisco, open your golden gate. God, it's just everything about it is so iconic. (laughs) (laughs) But for those who aren't familiar with this movie, Martin Short plays a child. And he's horrible, and he has this, like, little brontosaurus he keeps in his back pocket everywhere he goes named Stefan, and he just, like, talks to Stefan like he's real. And he's wants nothing more than to go to this place called Dinosaur World. So he's on a plane with his parents, and his mother is, like, on a bunch of antidepressants, and his dad's, like, about to have a heart attack because this kid is so terrible. And he, like, shuts down the engines on the plane to force it to land in Los Angeles so he can go to Dinosaur World. And he ends up kind of being thrown off to his uncle, played by uh, Charles uh, Grodin. And he's trying to impress his fiance, who's played by Mary Steenburgen. So he like pretends like, oh, I love my nephew Clifford. He's great. I can't wait for you to meet him. And he becomes like increasingly busy with work and isn't able to bring Clifford to Dinosaur World. And like Clifford just like wreaks havoc on this man's life and pushes his uncle to the like the point of insanity where you really think like he is going to like kill this kid. 
And it's just a fun journey. And I love it. And it brought me a lot of comfort and joy for this horrible, horrible, horrible uh, 2021 Mardi Gras that was <laughs> fake and didn't happen. So, yeah, that's kind of my movies I watched as of late. So uh, <laughs> what about you, Brandon? Uh, I've been catching up with a lot of recent 2021 releases. There's there's a few things that have like popped up on streaming services that um, I was excited to check out. And I saw a couple good horror movies in that list. One was like my like one of the movies I was really looking forward to last year that just never came out. Uh, it was that movie Saint Maud? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to see that. Isn't it about like not an old lady but a young lady? <laughs> it's never, kind never of like mind. a psycho bitty movie in reverse. Like this young nurse for an older like artist who's dying of cancer kind of becomes the tormentor of this woman she's working for. So I think you would like that dynamic a lot. It's like this like religiously zealous nurse trying to convert this like hedonistic artist in her final days who's like basically just wants to drink and have sex with women and like um enjoy her like final moments alive. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. But her nurse like wants to convert her and save her soul. Um and they have this like kind of psychological thriller clash between the two of them. But mm-hmm the movie is like more in the nurse's head than it is about their dynamic together. It's really about how she just has lost her goddamn mind. And like all the voiceover is her directly um, talking to God and her version of Christianity is just like completely made up. It like has nothing to do with like actual scripture. She just like has these like giant beetles and like spirals that she hallucinates out in the world that aren't real and she like just makes up what she thinks God's plan is on earth and how she can enact it herself. So it's like a very like unreliable narrator, like psychological thriller that just gets more and more intense as it goes along and has this kind of like a 24 horror patina to it. I don't think it's as good as like something like hereditary or the witch or something like that, but it is in that wheelhouse and it is very short and like punchy And it's just like a very strange fucked up character study about this like religious nut who just makes up the like rules of her version of Christianity as she goes along. And it just keeps getting more and more like upsetting the further she goes down that rabbit hole. So yeah, I was really excited about it last year. It just showed up on this streaming service called Epics, which I've never heard of before. Me either. It's a EPIX. You can sign up for a free trial Watch that movie for free and then cancel, which is what I did. I'm probably going to do that. That sounds really cool. Um, and I also watched one on Shudder that I really liked called The Queen of Black Magic. There's this guy, Joko Anwar, who I loved his movie last year in Pedagore. He's this Indonesian filmmaker, um, and he makes these like kind of traditional supernatural horror films, but like it's a really well-constructed, really... F- upsettingly gory like fucked up version of like mainstream horror and they're you know indonesian so they have this like different cultural perspective than you're used to seeing with that kind of like mainstream straight ahead horror film and this other thing he does is he's been like remaking indonesian cult classics from when he was a kid he remade this movie called satan slaves a couple years ago they got like a lot of buzz and then this one the queen of black magic is like this 80s movie 
that I guess really traumatized him as a child and like turned him into a horror nerd. And he like wrote a revision of it. Um, someone else directed this one. He didn't direct it himself, but it's, it's like in the same wheelhouse of the like recent Indonesian um, ghost stories that he's been making. This one's about a haunted orphanage where these like adults who all, I don't guess you don't graduate from an orphanage. You like age out of it, but they all like return to this orphanage that they all lived at as kids and they start to remember this like past traumatic event that happened there and all these like supernatural things that happened afterwards. And as they dig further into their memories and like the evidence around the orphanage, they start realizing that there was abuse among the other kids that were there and they start getting punished for not fixing that problem by the titular queen of black magic. The story doesn't not matter all that much. What's really great about this is that the queen of black magic is mad at the fact that there was child abuse in the world. And instead of like targeting just the people who did that abuse, she targets everyone. She's like so fucking angry about the fact that it happened, that she wants to create hell on earth, mostly by possessing people's bodies and making them mutilate themselves. And these like horrific, like CGI self surgery scenes. And also by making people puke up centipedes, There's like just tons and tons of like CGI centipedes in this movie just pouring out of everyone's like holes and and no one is safe. Like people you're like, oh, they're innocent. They're they're just going to like get away with it. No, like men, women, children, everyone is like fucked because she wants to create hell on earth to pay for this like past crime that she couldn't stop when she was like a living person. Now that she's like a supernatural ghost, she can um, enact her revenge. I don't know. I would love to do a Joko Anwar episode sometime to like watch maybe the original Indonesian movies he's recreating here. But like these newer versions of those films are like really fun, fucked up, upsetting mainstream horror films that are just kind of like going to film festivals and then ending up on Shudder and not really making much of a splash. So yeah, I recommend checking out his stuff. And and Pedagore last year was like incredibly good. That was like on my best of the year list. Um, This one's not quite the same. But it, it is in the same wheelhouse, and it's really worth a look. I might do a double feature with those two, because I still haven't seen Empedagore, but I know you love it, so and I trust your taste. And Shudder is kind of going all in on his stuff. Like, they're hosting his movies and the, like, original versions of what he's remaking. So you can check them all out on, like, one streaming service, which is cool. And um, I also have been going off on a tangent watching Gillian Flynn movies and TV shows lately. So I roped <laughs> y'all into that one. Uh, so we, we might get into a Joko Anwar episode later down the line. But today we're talking to Gillian Flynn. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. You don't expect to see the screenwriter getting star treatment at a film premiere. But then how often does a novelist with no film experience get to write her own screenplay. The story is supposed to go that they say, oh, it's so cute, little writer, that you <laughs> that you gave us this screenplay, and now please go away forever, and we'll, we're going to you know, do what we want to with it. But no one is telling Gillian Flynn to go away. So right now I'm, like, mooching off of Britney's HBO subscription, so I've been catching up with, like, <laughs> older TV shows that I didn't watch back when they were on the air. Um, I did recently watch Sharp Objects, which I feel like was more of a hot topic like two years ago, whenever it first came out. And 
watching it, I, I was reminded so much of older Gillian Flynn adaptations I had seen before. She, I feel like, has a very specific point of view as a writer, which, you know, usually on this show, we usually talk about like a director or an actor, but re- really like a screenwriter is like what we base the whole episode around. But I saw a lot of like recurring tropes in her work. And I really liked Sharp Objects a lot. It was like almost like a surreal, like cerebral take on her work that I didn't normally see because her tropes are so kind of like trashy airport novel <laughs> related. So I was just kind of like looking into her stuff and I've realized looking at her IMDb that all three of the novels she's written have all been adapted into a TV show or a movie, which that's fascinating to me. And uh, the, the other tropes that sort of stuck out, like they're all set in Missouri where she's from. They all have this like kind of journalism angle. And I think she started off as like a f- entertainment journalist for like entertainment it's weekly, weekly yeah. like different yeah magazines and stuff like that. Um, and they all have this like big twist at the end. And I, I really liked the twist and sharp objects mostly because it like confirmed my suspicions about what was going on on the show. Really? Yeah. I saw it coming and then when they revealed the killer, I was like kind of disappointed. I'm like, oh, they laid all those seeds and just sort of like abandoned them. And then the twist confirmed that. The twist like took me by surprise. Really? That, that's <laughs> yes. actually what my problem with the show was, was that I was like really invested into it. I love the Amy Adams character and I love the setting that like Southern Gothic thing. And it kept building up to this grand reveal and Pretty early on in the series, like you, Brandon, I kind of was like, okay, I think I know who this is, and you're expecting a twist, and it didn't really have that twist in in the way that I wanted. I mean, I still think it was a well-made show, though. I think what I like about the twist on that show, and I think something we'll get into each one of these movies, yeah. and I think it's something that she gets criticized for like very harshly is that she writes really difficult, fucked up women of like all ages. Like all of the women in her writing are complicated. They're often cruel. They misbehave in like really extravagant, violent ways. And I find that endlessly fascinating. So like all the like characters who are implicated at the end of Sharp Objects um, for various acts of violence are all women who are overlooked by the like people in that small town who are like, obviously a man did this because that's what men do. They are violent. But Gillian Flynn ends up writing complicated, fucked up, violent women in a way that I find a lot more interesting than, you know, sort of like the heroic strong women characters that are, you know, kind of like the superhero role model women that have been, sort of like selected as what we should be striving for. And I think she gets a lot of flack for being misogynist because of that. She's been called like a woman hater by her critics. Um, And I I just didn't feel that way at all. Right. Like I almost feel like empowered that like, oh yeah, lady villains. Hello. I love that. I mean, (laughs) as a woman, I do too up until a point, but after watching all this stuff, all these movies like in a row, (laughs) I do kind of, it's a little one note and you kind of want some nuance and maybe a female character too that's not super fucked up in some way. It is tropes at this point. For sure. I think that you can coast on that for a couple books and a movie or two, 
I would like to see her expand beyond that. Cause yeah, it's a little, little bit like one note. I want more um, psycho bitty from her. <laughs> yeah. Patricia Clarkson is so good. Yes. Like that, ugh, you know, chef's kiss. That is like everything I love <laughs> right there. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of like how she's kind of bringing back like all this great, like, I mean, I talk about it all the time, but I love like lifetime movies mainly ones about like you know um psychotic women (laughs) so i think she's kind of helping bring that back to like the modern times that we're living in and i i'm here for it i do think her strong point is like it's plot everything we're going to talk about today including sharp objects like it does have some good acting and the movies we're going to talk about have good acting to varying degrees but it's never really about characters. It's really about who do we need in here to progress this plot to get to this twist. And again, after watching all of it in a row, it's like the characterization is not the point. And that, that's like something I have a problem with. It's all plot based. It's all, like you said, it's all leading up to like some sort of twist and I don't know. And you come, you come to sort of like expect it and think you can solve the puzzle before you get there in that like kind of M. Night Shyamalan way. Like you're like, okay, I know it's coming. What is she teasing? And I'm not always correct. Like it's, I'm often wrong actually. Well, but to varying degrees, like, you know, and one movie we're going to talk about in particular, I feel like is that formula gone completely off the rails where you try <laughs> to inject this out there twist and because you haven't set up strong characters and we don't care about these people necessarily when the twist fails the whole movie fails that's fair and i i do think maybe why i wanted to talk about her generally up top is because there are things you can nitpick in some of these movies and we kind of have to because that's the whole point of like talking this stuff out but i just like respect the fact that she wrote three novels they all got adapted and she is like often involved as a screenwriter in those movies production mm-hmm. even on like sharp objects she was like one of the like co-showrunners on that show um and it's like very rare that a writer gets to be an auteur in that way um and i i like that she has such a strong imprint on all of this material like almost all of them are set in missouri almost all of them have these like really damaged women with these like fucked up childhoods who are like trying to become an, a functional adult and struggling with that transition. Like they all have like a, a similar angle and we kind of celebrate that with directors. A lot of the time it's, it's very rare that we get to do that with a writer. I do think her screenwriting, the movies that she's actually written the script for. I think that's, what's interesting about the films we're going to talk about is, you know, in one of these films, uh, she wrote the script, but it wasn't her story. In another, it was her story, but she didn't have anything to do with the script. And then in another one, she wrote the story and she wrote the script. And I think you'll see which formula works. And to me, the key thing is like, she is a very talented screenwriter to the point where I actually read some of the script for Gone Girl. And the script itself, if you read it, is compelling. It's so so great in that it like, the dialogue is very good. It's very clever, but it also the action she writes is like very clear, concise, and 
gives the actors and director like the cues they need to push the story forward. Like, and of the movies we're going to talk about, the two that she actually wrote the script for are by far the strongest. And I think that says something to her as a writer. Yeah. And it's like impressive, even in the first place that gone girl was like her first, it was the first adaptation of her work and her first screenplay. And she got to maintain control of that. Like, I don't know what that contract negotiation was, but like, the fact that she was allowed to have that much say in her work being adapted by this like very, you know, respected director that says something, you know, she's, she's very like forceful presence in Hollywood. And I don't know. I, I think you're right that like, maybe she hits the one note too many times and it's like time to see more from her. But yeah, I, I just am impressed that she has that much like say in how her work is adapted. a girl I was pretending to be. Cool girl. Men always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl. Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is gay. Cool girl is fun. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. She only smiles in a chagrin loving manner and then presents her mouth for fucking. She likes what he likes. So evidently, he's a vinyl hipster who loves fetish manga. If he likes girls gone wild, she's a mall babe who talks football and endures buffalo wings at Hooters. When I met Nick Dunn, I knew he wanted cool girl. And for him, I'll admit, I was willing to try. I wax stripped my pussy raw. I drank canned beer watching Adam Sandler movies. I ate cold pizza and remained a size two. I blew him, semi-regularly. I lived in the moment. I was fucking game. Okay, so Gone Girl came out in 2014. It was actually the first week we all blogged together. It was on our like best of 2014 list, which was, I think, the last time I watched it, too. It was like in the theater that year. <laughs> Whereas Sharp Objects is this like trippy, psychological, like dreamlike show where all these images sort of like interweave, Gone Girl is not like that at all. It's like Fincher doing this like airport novel thriller adaptation. It has like a tawdry lifetime kind of feel to it, but with a big budget. It's also like really funny. A lot of it is this like dark comedy about the structure and institution of the American marriage and how like straight people are not okay. Um, (laughs) This like wife and this husband actively fucking hate each other. They met at this like really swanky New York City party. Their money runs out and they move back to the husband's hometown in Missouri. Uh, he's played by Ben Affleck, and he is kind of a average douchebag, kind of asshole. And he falls in love with this, like, used to be famous, but is now growing out of it. Um, she was, like, famous when she was a kid because her parents wrote books based on her character called The Amazing Amy Books. Um, she's played by Rosamund Pike, and in the film, she is abducted from their house. And we have to spoil all three of these movies or we can't talk about them. So halfway through the film, it's revealed that she faked her own kidnapping and possible murder and is fucking with uh, her husband for cheating on her with a younger woman. Her original plan is to kill herself, but she loves herself too much to do that. Instead, she just continues to torment him from afar while in hiding um, and just like gleefully fucking with him and like ruining their marriage 
in a very like deadly game that just escalates and escalates as the twists keep piling on from the Gillian Flynn twist book. I think this movie is very funny. If you look at it, like he casts a lot of comedians like Tyler Perry, Neil Patrick Harris, Missy Pyle is extremely funny as this like Nancy Grace spoof. Um, who's like documenting the uh, ins and outs of their of the missing Amazing Amy case as it plays out in the press. It held up really well for me, but it was funny re-watching it after Sharp Objects to see how straightforward of a thriller this is and how lifetime it is versus the sort of surrealism of that show. Well, I think that's the David Fincher influence coming in. At this point in his career, he has a very clear style. You watch this movie, and if you've seen any David Fincher films, you're like, oh, this is a David Fincher. And he's got a whole team of people behind him, and you know, Trent Reznor did the score. So it's a very sleek, stylish, well-crafted thing. And yeah, it's pretty straightforward in that style. It's not doing anything trippy or weird. I would describe his style as like kind of cold. Very cold. Very cold. And it like fits with this in an odd way because there is that humor in here, the dark humor, but it like that cold style fits with this story. Yeah, I think it held up very well. It's just very well crafted. And I don't know, even if you know, you know, seeing it a second time, I knew all the twists and it was still pretty delicious to watch it play out. Yeah. That's the thing is like, of all the stories I've seen from Gillian Flynn, this one is the most pulpy, delicious story of the bunch. And when you have that, like of David Fincher and all these like great actors behind it, it's just like dripping with deliciousness. I mean, you can't not enjoy this if you're into those sort of films. I remember being like so stoked to see this when it came out in theaters And I did. And there was a man who fell asleep next to me, (laughs) which was very interesting. Um, And I think it's just because I don't know, like I, I I was just amped watching it the entire time. And I, I I did read the book a little before actually seeing the film, but the, the book came out like a few years earlier. So, you know, I'll read something and I'll kind of forget about it after a few months. But there were a lot of, you know, good connections I was making between like the book and the film. And what I like so much about it is, like, both of the characters suck. Like, don't suck, but they're not good. That's something I was really curious about because I had read a little bit online with some people that had read the book and watched the movie saying that the book makes her character a little more, I guess, you know, it's a book, so you can add more depth. And in the Mm -hmm. book, she comes across a little more sympathetic and in the yeah. in the film, I really got the sense watching it again that like you want the dynamic to be equal that they're both like pretty shitty persons that are imitating what their partner wants, but they're both kind of hollow on the inside. But in the movie, I hate to say it, but you kind of do end up rooting—not rooting for the Ben Affleck character—but he seems like the lesser of the two evils, and apparently. In the book, it's not quite that same dynamic. <laughs> the big thing that I remember so vividly, though, was like that resonated with me as like a woman with Amy's character is when she talks about like having to be the cool girl all the time. 
and how like being the cool girl isn't just one type of girl with Ben Affleck's type. Like, you know, Ben Affleck is like, and I, I think it was something along the lines of like, you know, yeah, you could burp and fart and watch football with him um, and chow down on like hot dogs and stuff, but you still have to be a size two to maintain what he thinks is attractive. And you basically like what he likes and you do what he does. And that exists so much. And not just with douchebags like, you know, Ben Affleck's character, but like, you know, if, you know, you're with like a hipster guy, like you have to be the cool girl then. You have to like obscure shit and wear vintage and, you know, get weird tattoos and things like that and fit into his world. And it exists like so much that like women always feel like they have to be that person. And it's so frustrating and, like, she talks about that in the book. And I just remember sitting there reading it. And I'm like, yes. Like, yes, 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 yes. Like, this is so accurate. Yeah, that's why you're pissed off. Like, I am too. <laughs> I'm not going to kill anybody, but. Yeah. The, well, then what's frustrating a little bit about the movie was that, you know, she goes out on her own. And within, like, a few days, she's robbed. She's like, screw this. I'm going to go back to my ex who's this rich guy living in this giant lake house. And it's like she literally could only survive on her own without a man for like four days. That bothered me. But at the same time, she's this like super rich white chick that thinks she's better than everybody else. So I did find some satisfaction with like, you know, these folks that she was like, you're all pieces of trash. Right. They ended up being like way fucking smarter than she was. Yeah, she's like <laughs> super naive and not street right. smart at all. Yeah, she's only ever been rich. She has never like had to live hand to mouth. Um, she's like is <laughs> is spoon fed her entire life. Right, exactly. And I think and it's it's because of that that she goes back to this guy because you know, she wants that wealth. Well, she knows she can manipulate him. Or so she thinks. Like, that's that to me was a big twist because I thought she's going to go find this guy. Obviously, you know, Desi, Neil Patrick Harris's character, like, tried to commit suicide when she broke up with him. Like, that's how much he's into her. So in her mind, she's like, this guy's going to do whatever the fuck I want, sweet. And he ends up being a psycho. <laughs> and you could tell when she starts to realize that he's more controlling than she expected. Like when he's like, yeah, thanks for breakfast. Can't wait till you go back to the gym so you can lose weight and start feeling like yourself again. <laughs> she's like, um, holy shit. Uh, no. <laughs> that, that, that face she makes, that's when I got scared for her. And I'm like, whoa. But I mean, she takes it a little, a little to the extreme to deal with him. I gotta say, I know she's evil in this movie, but it is so delicious. And I like her character more than I like this like normal guy that she is starting a war with. It, it feels like a very exaggerated, literalized like war of the sexes thing where it's like the movie's having a laugh at sort of the um, cliche failed marriage. Like if it were a more subdued kind of like sober drama, they would have just quietly resented each other and maybe gotten back at each other in these like really small ways. But instead it blows it up where she becomes this like outrageous evil comic book character. And um, that is way more fun to watch than his like, Oh shucks. I, I, I can't believe my wife is such a bitch uh, misogynist. <laughs> I, I like that. She gets to basically attack him <laughs> and attack other men. You know, if this were real life, I wouldn't feel as uh 
I wouldn't feel as glib about her right. like, acts of violence in the film, but like in the context of the movie, it's a really funny portrait of how fucked up the average marriage is um, where the two people don't actually love each other as much well, as they pretend to. And to me, yeah, she yeah. like she represented, you know, and this gets into the whole, like there was so much debate about, is this film feminist or anti feminist? I mean, to me, she just represents like, the way that women have been portrayed at their worst, like for years, like that they're manipulative, they're cunning, they're opportunistic, all this stuff. It's playing that up to an almost operatic level. And so I didn't take the film in, in any sort of feminist or anti-feminist way. It was just like, yeah. she was, yeah, like you said, like a, a cartoon level, like villain that happened to be a female that's seriously taking all like the stereotypes about evil women to uh, its absolute breaking point. And if you think about the crime that she's avenging too, is like the fact that he just sort of ignores her. Like he parks her in this house in Missouri and doesn't spend any time with her. Um, so she's just sort of bored in this house and is like, what can I do with my time? And the more she like stews on her resentment of him, the more she plans out this like perfect fake murder uh, <laughs> plot. And he is like the most boring guy. Could you imagine being married to like that character? Like how hellish that would there be. There is like a class thing going on though. Cause like only someone that has a shit ton of money and could just sit around all day would be able to have the time and resources to co- even come up with this plan, like to plan it's this so elaborate murder, like a rich person <laughs> dilemma. Yeah, and I don't know. I hate the criticism of this film that it's like misogynistic, and I'm like, it's misogynistic to assume that this movie is misogynistic. Like, women don't have to be this like cookie cutter like superhero in every fucking movie. They could be assholes too, and that's fabulous. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like calling back to like the femme fatale trope from like noir films. Yeah, and which is those I movies think are wonderful. misogynistic in the way that James is describing, where it's like, you know, manipulative women who have these like secretive ulterior motives and like just want to drain men's pocketbooks and like get everything they can out of them and then move on to the next victim. Like there is a misogyny undertone of that. But also those roles for women are like way more exciting and dynamic oh, yeah. than what women usually get to play. Like usually you get to play the victim who just sort of like takes all the like shitty husband abuse and just sort of like quietly stomachs it and has your big cry moment. And you get an Oscar for that. Like I'd much rather watch her strike back than, you know, suffer the abuse. Well, Gillian Flynn seems like her work is trying to be in direct contrast to the trend. We've seen in a lot of women's roles over the past, like couple decades where it's like the woman has to be nurturing, supportive, you know, motherly, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that gets a lot of Oscars and and stuff like that. But it is refreshing to kind of go back to what you're saying, like an older time where no women could just be the outright villain of a story. And that's okay. And I watching this again, I kind of not that I felt more sympathy for her because I mean, her character is what it is and it's great. But I kind of made more of a connection between like how she was able to fake it through that end part where she got, you know, comes back and they have the press there and she's constantly like telling him like what to do, like kiss my cheek, um, <laughs> act like you love me, hold my hand. 
And she does it so comf- like confidently, like she's not thinking twice about it. And it's because like she's had to kind of fake it her whole life. I mean, she spent her life trying to live up to this, you know, amazing Amy standard that her parents like set up for her. And you can tell like when people have to grow up, like that's why you see like a lot of privileged folks and rich people, they kind of are able to a lot of them are like sociopaths and they're like that because they have to live up to the certain standard to be accepted by like their rich family. And I kind of made that connection more so than I did before watching it that second time. And I'm like, okay, I get why she's doing that. And I liked the ending because I thought it was funny that he's trapped in this marriage (laughs) with this woman. And like, especially that part where his sister's crying in the kitchen. I don't know why, but like I was just laughing my ass off. I I really liked the ending too. And it, yeah, it it seems what was really on Gillian Flynn's mind was, it seemed like she was touching on all the reasons why people stay in shitty marriages. It's either because of class, like because we have to keep up our, you know, our wealth or it's like kids, which comes in at the very end, you know, Oh, I have a responsibility to my children. So yeah, it seemed like that was thematically like really on the forefront of, of my, I thought that was interesting. We just live in a world that like looks down on divorce where I'm like, it's just something that's done. Like who gives a shit? Like, it's there for a reason. And people really will go through all of these lengths to live in pure and utter hell just to like not go through a divorce. Well, and, and Nick kind of screws himself in this movie. I He has a great kind of counterattack to her. That interview he gives and where the host asks him to look directly into the camera and he works her completely. She's on the edge of her seat. She's seeing the man that she's always wanted to be with. And that's what gets her to decide to come back to him. And it's a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, he's not on death row and they're raking in the dough from these lifetime movies and book deals. Life is good in that sense. But now you're like stuck with this woman that's a sociopath and you have no idea what, you know, next time you piss her off, what she's going to do. So it's sort right. of a blessing and a curse. And <laughs> and then when you bring in the kid, it's like, oh, damn. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> and, you doomed. know, he's kind of almost like the same as she is. Like that whole interview, like he's like, I'm going to like manipulate her into coming back and I know what to do, which she also knows how to do. And so in a weird way, I'm like, are they meant to be together <laughs> and just like live a life of fucking with each other because they both get like a hard on from it? I just... I love this movie just because like there is no hero and I I hate movies where there always has to be like a good person that, that saves the day. Like, yeah, it's just a kind of really shitty, boring ass dude. Um, And this (laughs) woman who's a a sociopath and I loved watching them tear each other apart. (laughs) The last thing I did want to, cause I know we touched on this in the opening segment, as far as Gillian Flynn as a screenwriter But I think there's a scene in this movie that is like, I actually had to rewind it and watch it again because it it was such a well-written scene was the, um, when the police confront Nick and they find out that she's pregnant 
and that he took out this life insurance policy. And they're basically stacking all this like evidence. And he slowly realizes that he is totally screwed and that he is now the prime suspect. The tension in that scene, the way it starts, you know, she comes in, the detective, she's like, did you know she was pregnant? Then they're like, why'd you take out this life insurance policy? Like, oh, she, she told me to. And oh, your credit card bill. And then it ends with him like slamming his glass on the ground. And he says like, I need a lawyer. Like (laughs) that is fucking great screenwriting. You know what I mean? Like the way that that scene plays out, it gives you all this new information. It progresses. It ends on like this high point of action. I think that is like masterful screenwriting. And Gone Girl was like a really big hit, which I don't think she's had as big of a hit since. Like, <laughs> it was like Twilight for like girls in their you know mid twenties, which I was one of them. <laughs> we were like passing the book around. I think it wasn't it a hit also because it really is to me the best movie. Well, first of all, I think the best story she's done and the best film version of a story she's done. And, you know, it had David Fincher and Ben Affleck, and that helps. But I think there's a reason that this one was the most successful. I I think it's the best movie we're talking about today. Maybe not by a wide margin, but for sure it is the best one. But based off the success of that book and that adaptation, like, she just has nothing but green lights from what I can see from the outside. Anyway, like she is getting so much stuff made off the back of that success. And every time you watch a trailer for one of her projects, it always starts like the writer of gone girl, no matter how many years you've gotten away from that movie, you know, the most immediate one right after is the cheapest and least prestigious (laughs) of any of her adaptations. This is a movie called dark places. It's one of her novels adapted in 2015, so like right off the heels of Gone Girl. It was distributed by A24, who made a deal with DirecTV. So this is like pre-The Witch A24. It was like before they were like a really big like marketing machine. They made this like direct-to-VOD adaptation of Dark Places. It's got a ton of stars in it. Like most of the actors in the film are people you would recognize. Most notably, Charlize Theron as the main character, She is, believe it or not, returning to her small town home in Missouri to uh, solve (laughs) a past crime. Uh, I'm going to love hearing you try to give a plot synopsis. I'm going to go very broad. Okay. okay? Yeah. No no details. And there's a lot of twists and a lot of subplots. But yeah. The broad picture of it is that in the 1980s, during the Satanic Panic era, Charlize Theron's brother was arrested It was her older brother. He was arrested for murdering her entire family. She believes he's guilty and has just sort of like ignored him in jail since she was a kid. But in the back of her mind, she knows that what she witnessed that night isn't exactly correct. And she has like a pang in guilt, kind of like amazing Amy, like growing up off of the fame of this thing that happened to her as a kid. Um, The money's running dry, much like Amazing Amy and Gone Girl. These tropes are really, like, clear once you watch all these movies in a row. Like, the characters are pretty similar. She's kind of like an alcoholic, a kleptomaniac. She's a hoarder. So her life's not going great. And in the 2010s, she is approached by 
a true crime club. They're called the Kill Club. Ugh. It is such a preposterous <laughs> um, device. Uh, these people who are really invested in famous crimes want to reopen her brother's case and get him out of jail because, you know, the satanic panic stuff was mostly, I mean, not mostly, it was 100% bullshit where, like, these teenagers who were into heavy metal were basically accused of being child murderers and pedophiles when that was just, like, not the case. And it was basically just Reagan-era, like, hysteria. So the movie flip-flops back and forth between her reluctantly helping this true crime club because they're paying her for her time to exonerate her brother. Not that much money, by the way. Isn't it like 500 Like 500 bucks. Like she's that <laughs> desperate for cash. And she's constantly asking like, yeah, can I get a, get that 300 bucks up front? You know, like <laughs> well, she needs it. Yeah, she's in a bad way. But yeah, she reluctantly helps. She's them. helping them reopen this case that she doesn't really believe that her brother is innocent at first. But the further she digs into it, she can't deny that they're like inconsistencies. And then going back to this like 80s thing where the crime happened. This movie's very cheap. It's not good. There's like no style to it. I mean, it's like extremely humorless in a way that I don't think any of her other movies are like there are no like jokes in this film. It's very like serious it's a very, like, made-for-TV movie. Very for sure. made-for-TV. And it kind of mistakes that humorlessness for, like, being prestigious. Like, it, it's like, because <laughs> there are no jokes and everyone's sad all the time, that means that it's, like, an important film. But I will say, it's still got the Gillian Flynn twists and the Gillian Flynn, like, difficult women. And I think the strength of the story at least makes it entertaining, even if the style is, like, complete trash. Well, there is a funny element to it, and I will say that it's, like, Charlize Theron's, like, bully look from, like, like she looks like she's a high school bully. <laughs> she looks like a supermodel wearing a baseball cap. She does not belong at this I just, character. <laughs> with this, like, these, like, baggy clothes and this, like, baseball cap, but she's always looking pissed off and tough. Like, I don't know. She just reminded me of somebody that would have beat me up in the 10th grade. <laughs> you had some beautiful bullies. Yeah, they were hot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that this story is strong at all. I, I mean, as far as like when the twists start coming towards the end, it completely falls apart for me. Plot-wise, I was actually kind of into it until about the halfway point. But what ultimately gets revealed at the end of this movie, what happened is some of the biggest load of bullshit I've <laughs> ever seen in a movie. What was that, what was that man's name again? The angel of death. The angel of death. It's, oh, spoiler alert. Like, anybody gives a shit. It's so <laughs> bad. Like, and I haven't read this book. I don't know. But apparently the movie is very faithful to the plot of the book. That makes sense. And that, yeah. to me, that is just a bad story. This is more it's of, bad. like, a drama than, like, a thriller for me. Like, I don't think, like, the point of watching it is to to get to some like bizarre ending. It's just like you, I guess you want this like girl to find some kind of closure. But it, it got interjected in there. The bizarre convoluted, what really happened that night ending it's there and it sucks. The only like clue you have that that's what's happening is like early in the film, the true crime club mentions this like character absentmindedly like, Oh yeah, we're trying to solve all these, all these different crimes, including this, um, angel of death guy. Anyway, back to your brother who's definitely innocent. 
And then, like, you know, an hour and a half later, it turns out that, like, throwaway line is, like, the clue to the whole thing. Well, and there's one other scene where she does give this guy money, but they talk very vaguely, and we don't quite know what she's exchanging money for. Yeah. And then, so, yeah, it's really, like, maybe a minute worth of the whole movie that clues you in to the final big twist. So, and then the, the twist just sucks. I mean, and then, well, and what, and also like there's the twist, but then also the guy that does get accused of murder. He, as a boy, he has impregnated this older girl and they want to run away, but she has this tussle with his sister and she ends up murdering his sister right after two killers the serial killer murdered the other members of the family he was paid to murder so he wasn't really a serial killer but he became one when the other little girl saw it and he killed her but then ben (laughs) takes a rap because he wants his daughter to be raised and the mom not to go to prison and then charlie saran ends up meeting the mom when she's older and they try to kill her. That sequence is great. Oh that is like some great Gillian Flynn preposterous bullshit. It's so that preposterous. was the good part. Was the apartment situation where she finds the necklace. Yeah, and she gets hit over the head by the daughter. It's like, why would you want your pregnant girlfriend who's a killer to raise your child? Like, yes. No. Why? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't sense. make any sense. The last 20 minutes of this movie, my head was in my hands. I, was just like, oh, I think that's when God. I got excited by the movie. And I, I hear you saying it's not a strong story. That 100% is true. That's not what I'm saying. I do think how ridiculous it is overpowers how boring all the filmmaking is. This movie is so like unstylish and so like just sort of going through the motions until those twists start piling up at the end and until these like evil women emerge and like get back to the good Gillian Flynn. But about like the no style thing, what I found so shocking and abhorrent about this film is there's like a couple of times where they attempt style. They do these handheld grainy, almost sound footage stuff. It's so lazy. And then this blew my mind. So the movie is go, <laughs> the movie is going back and forth in time, right? And it's, the movie's all in color. You know, it's completely made where we can understand the two timelines, even though they're shot exactly the same way. But then, inexplicably, there's one scene that's in black and white. Did you catch that? <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Wait, which scene? Oh, it was Ben talking about the the like eleven year old girl. He had a fling with that accused him oh it was her flashback when she talks her about flashback him. and that one oh, scene stairs. of the whole movie is in black and white for no hmm. fucking reason like why because it's child memories maybe child me- yeah i guess but i'm saying like <laughs> the few times it attempts some kind of style it falls on its face and i'm like what are you doing like, I will say the v, the uh, camcorder like handheld footage bothers me a lot. The found footage stuff because they don't even try to make it look like a VHS camcorder right. from the '80s. <laughs> like it looks like shitty digital camcorder videos. And <laughs> first of all, like why do that at all? There's no one filming this murder that <laughs> happened. Like it's not part of the story that someone it's had a so camera true. while the whole family was getting <laughs> shotgun so down. So like. 
You know who I thought the killer was? I thought it was Charlize Theron's character. I thought she yeah, like yeah. lost her shit when she was a little girl and killed her family. That's what that I would be the Gillian Flynn way. I know. And then she like suppressed the memory and then she realized she did it. <laughs> that would have been the like most predictable way that this writer would take that story. And that is 100% what I expected as well. I liked... I think maybe that is why I liked the the last act of the film because it was so off the rails and just like nonsense. I'm especially once she starts getting attacked by her brother's um, secret lover and their like love child. I'm like, what is this nonsense? At least I was like surprised and entertained by the choices that she made. It wasn't like her on autopilot. She was writing like a very weird convoluted story. Right. Especially cause like the love child is also like crazy. Wait, I have, oh, a, yeah. qu- I have a question Which about I think the is love fun. child though. <laughs> One question about the love child. So when this happened, they said like 29 years ago or something, the, the killings. Sure. Uh... Right. Okay. So if it happened 20 plus years ago, whatever the daughter when she meets the, the daughter's like 15 yeah like the age don't it don't work out that threw me Maybe off I'm like, why it's she because the mother old? like keeps her aunt inside and like babies her well i would like to have seen that yeah that sounds like a good movie that's good <laughs> oh my god am i like the next uh gillian flynn or something oh uh, yeah <laughs> no i, I brandon i kind of see what you're saying brandon like the whole movie was dull dull but i was yes. like i was in for the ride because i was i was like oh okay there's gonna be some twists like i love these kind of movies let me see what happens and then i guess i was the most entertained in the last like 30 minutes out of pure shock and what is this what is going on this makes no sense but um after seeing other gillian flynn where she can pull off these twists i was just like this ain't it man this was bad. And she did not write this screenplay. This is not her adaptation of her work. This is her work in someone else's hands who's like, hey, Gone Girl was a hit. What can we churn out real fast from the back catalog? <laughs> Brittany, do you like this movie more than us? I would not be surprised if you did. I think I do. Okay. <laughs> I, I just think it, it gives me that like made for TV lifetime comfort that I that I like, like, I, you know, when it, movies like this, like, I don't care if the plot is surprising or if it's even good. <laughs> I just want to be entertained. And I, I loved, like, the absurdity of everything. Like, I found that to be really fun. Yeah. Like, I had a, a good time. <laughs> the only hint that you get that this movie is going to be so silly is when she first meets the Kill Club and she goes to this, like, warehouse party where there's, like, industrial uh, music playing and, like, people are dressed as famous serial killers in this, like, multi-tiered God. party. It's like, this is complete nonsense. This is not not a real thing that would ever happen. That scene is so wild. <laughs> it reminded me of, like, the club in um, Dogs Don't Wear Pants. <laughs> like an like, S&M club? Yeah, like, you're walking in, but it's just, like, these, like, true crime dorks that are... <laughs> and there's, like, different tiers that you could climb to. But when you read it in, like, a book, okay, your mind can kind of imagine what it's like. But when you see it in a movie, I, I don't know, I was just, like this doesn't seem real at all. Like what this would not exist in any realm of reality. It was so bizarre. And I kind of like liked it and I sort of wanted the movie to you spend more, more time. More kill club. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I wanted the movie to like spend more time with that club of like weirdos that are obsessed with true crime. It's kind of like that whole beginning part where she like, I don't know, like she meets him in this laundromat and she's like, why are we here? And he's like, I own this place. Like that already is bizarre. And then he's like, let me tell you about the kill club. <laughs> and then they go to this like bizarre, like Disney world kill club in like a shed, like an old, like or warehouse. And it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. Yeah. I, that setup <laughs> is good, but man, that middle chunk of like the hour and 10 minutes in the middle where we get to meet all these other characters and, Oh, he could have done it. Oh, he could have done it. And then we learn all these subplots and, and it's jumping in time back and forth. Like all of that sucked. And then, you know, the ending is batshit. doesn't make any sense. That's entertaining. But as a whole, like the problem with this is it's like the weakest Gillian Flynn story. She didn't write the script. It had the least amount of money behind it. Seems like it was yeah. produced the quickest of anything. So it just totally missed the mark on adapting this story well. Whenever this movie leaves Canopy, it's going to make its way to Tubi TV. Yeah, it is. And it's going to stay there forever. <laughs> I think this is what you would think of when you hear like, oh, she writes bestseller thrillers with like ridiculous twists. You're like, this is the trash she writes watching this movie like my first thought when watching sharp objects is i kind of expected it to be more like this movie this movie is like a good example of like how her work could be just sort of like disregarded as trash i would say sharp objects is like the middle ground for me from this to like a gone girl situation mm -hmm. it's got a little bit of the batshit crazy nonsense twist stuff but it works way better than this does and sharp objects has way more style and surreal stuff which makes it a million times more interesting yeah this doesn't do anything to help her story mm -hmm. at all like i liked the family drama of it and i think that's what i like so much about like sharp objects is i love like trashy family history type crap like that and I feel like this was somewhat there, but not really. Well, now we have to talk about a movie that is very stylish, has a bunch of great performances in it, um, mm -hmm. and was also not a hit uh, somehow. In 2018, uh, I think this is like her most prestigious work because this is like still her getting jobs off of Gone Girl, but she's like breaking away from what she's famous for. Gillian Flynn wrote a... Screenplay for Steve McQueen, who had previously won the Oscar for 12 Years a Slave. She adapted a British TV show that he grew up loving uh, with him. It's called Widows. I expected when I saw this in the theater that it was going to be this like really stylish heist movie. I was expecting kind of like belly or something like style over substance, like beautiful shots of like women robbing. I thought a bank based on the trailer, but instead it's this like really well-crafted drama it came out around Oscars time. It did not get any nominations. I don't think for anything major, but it feels like it was made for individual actors to get nominated for stuff. It's set in Chicago. It has nothing to do with Missouri, which is different than all the other Gillian Flynn adaptations. Viola Davis is the main actor. Her husband who played by Liam Neeson um, dies in a heist. 
and leaves behind this notebook for his next job. He had this like all these blueprints to steal money from a local politician in Chicago. And Viola Davis decides to recruit all of the other widows whose husbands um, and boyfriends died in the same police shootout that killed her husband. So she recruits all these women who do not know each other. Their lives are all very different. Um, Some are more poor than others. Some are like not used to having to be tough. Uh, She has to like toughen them up to get them ready to steal from a politician. And it kind of plays out like the entire season of a prestige TV show. Like it feels like an extra season of the wire because there's just like so many characters and you kind of check in on each one, like a soap opera just for like a scene or two before moving on to the next one in the cycle. So even though Viola Davis is the main actor in the film, there's like so many different really great performances from different people that you don't get to spend that much time with. Like you just sort of like cycle through each one until the heist at the end sort of like blows up their entire situation. And that's when the Gillian Flynn twists start coming in. You you start to find out that, um, the police shootout we saw that killed all the husbands in the first scene was not exactly um, what we were teased at first. Um, I saw this movie in the movie theater in 2018. I liked it a lot. Um, I don't like it as much as Gone Girl, but I think it's in the same realm. Like it's the same level of like, just like well-crafted throwback to like kind of like big budget nineties thrillers that we don't get anymore. So I don't know. I, I don't know if y'all had seen this movie before. And if not, I thought maybe y'all would like it. I really liked it. Good. And I think the reasons I, I liked it are also kind of why I ended up not loving it, which is, is kind of a weird thing to say. But like there were individual moments in this picture that were outstanding, like individual scenes or, you know, individual shots. Like there's a, this politician character played by Colin Farrell. And he gives this like pep rally in like kind of the ghetto in Chicago. He gets like in his limo and there's this great shot where he's talking with his advisor and you just see kind of how the neighborhood changes as he drives from the ghetto to where he lives. And he's just like talking shit about them. Talking shit about them, typical politician stuff. Like that was... There was individual moments like that that were masterful. Or like Daniel Kaluuya staring down the kid, like makes them rap by gunpoint. Yeah, and then, oh my and his God. his eyes oh. are just like he, so staring him down That's so a perfect intensely. example I'm talking about, like his performance and when he stabs the guy in the bowling alley. So brutal. And he's fantastic. But I think to its detriment, when you're juggling that many characters and that many themes it felt like you were trying to pack a six episode miniseries into a two hour movie. And I didn't get enough of each character that I really liked. And so in the end, I just like, I wanted to spend more time in this universe and it felt like you were trying to tackle. And it's the same thing thematically too. I mean, this movie touches on race and police brutality and poverty and politics and, on and on and on, all these different things, all these different characters. And it does a pretty good job of actually hitting everything that it wants to hit. But in the end, I just like, I needed a little more time in that world. 
that's a kind of movie that comes out every Oscar season though. Right. I, I just watched um, Judas and the black Messiah on HBO the other day. Oh. And I, I kind of had the same feeling. It was like, well, these are really good showcase scenes for these different actors, but it's not the, you know, undercover cop thriller that it's kind of like supposed to be like the plot of it. Isn't as exciting and as tense as it could be if it weren't trying to squeeze in all these like showcase right. reels for these actors to have these big moments. Yeah. I, mean, I, I feel kind of the same way. Like widows, like each individual scene is so well done, but it's not really in service of the heist movie at the core of it, which the yeah, heist ends up being spend like more time minutes. with the ladies. <laughs> yeah. That too. Yeah. Well, especially like there's the one character who they recruit as the driver Cynthia Revo, she's great. She's yeah. fantastic, and it, like I wanted, like that scene where she's running to get to the bus. Like she has a couple scenes where like she's so good. I'm so into her character. I want to know more about her backstory. I want like her in more scenes, and you just get her in like five or six scenes in the movie, so you feel a little bit disappointed. But I, I think also I was a little disappointed that the heist itself only lasts for about 10 minutes. I was expecting the heist to be this kind of everything leading up to this 20 to 30 minute drawn out thing. It's not really that it is more of a prestige drama sort of deal, which is fine. But I do think the performances are fantastic and great directing too. So I hadn't seen this movie until we watched it for the episode and I always assumed it was going to be like Ocean's 8. Like, I, I kind of always kind of thought like, oh, it's going to be like another Ocean's 8, which I did like that movie, but it's been done. And I typically don't go for heist movies. And I was kind of surprised um, about how much I liked it. And I had no idea that like Gillian Flynn had anything to do with it um, until recently. Um, but I liked it a lot. I loved Viola Davis and her performance. And like her whole story just like tugged at my heartstrings and I loved the ending for her, which, you know, I was clapping <laughs> when it happened. Her big uh, twist ending is that she gets to smile for the first time because she's been so fucking miserable the whole movie. <laughs> right. Like, at the end when she like Poor smirks, woman. it's like a huge relief. Which I know. Is great. I'm like, oh, thank God. But yeah, like I just the plans that they were making weren't like you know, this super crazy intricate thing with a bunch of James Bond music playing while they do cheesy blueprints and stuff like that. Like, I just, I don't know. Like I liked how each woman kind of contributed to it. And I, I love that scene, even though it was like super bizarre to watch, but um, I can't think of her name, but she goes to, she has the blueprint and she's trying to figure out like where it is. And Michelle Rodriguez, Michelle Rodriguez. Yes. And she, like, just breaks down because she, like, lost her husband with this guy that, like, lost his wife who was this, you know, architect. And then they just hug each other and start making out. That was weird. <laughs> yeah, it was weird, but it was kind of like, I felt that, like, I don't think, like, either, I don't think he was being a super creep or she was being a super creep. I just think they were both really sad and got into it. Just <laughs> grief making them do weird things. Exactly. And I thought like, I don't know, that felt like really authentic. Like I'm like weird crap like that happens when people are grieving, you know, if we're going to talk about individual women like Cynthia Revo and uh, Michelle Rodriguez, we also have to talk about just how weirdly tall Elizabeth Debicki is. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you brought that up because like, <laughs> I feel like her height is never highlighted in this movie. 
Well, in this movie it is. Oh, okay. But like in other stuff I've seen her in, like I feel like like it, it's something that like they t- the camera shies away from, but she's just like this gloriously tall, gorgeous woman and I love how like this movie embraced that. You don't see a lot of movies where you have a tall woman with like a shorter guy. And she she's next to Lucas Haas a lot in this movie, and he's like really small. Yeah, and I love that. I love that dynamic because I'm like, yes, this is real life. Like there are tall women out there, and they do fuck short people. Like it's okay, <laughs> you know. Not only tall guys can fuck short women. <laughs> so I, that felt good. And I know that between this one and Tenet, um, she was cast as a uh, domestic abuse victim in both movies, and people are like. I just saw a lot of criticism about like why someone that, you know, physically imposing has to be cast as someone who's like basically a punching bag for these like evil men. I don't really have an answer to that question, but it's, it's interesting. I think her character in this though had for me, the most satisfying arc at the beginning, she's taking the abuse. She can't drive a car. And by the end she's fully empowered. She's like driving this badass car like she has the biggest change mm-hmm. in her character and it's like pretty satisfying to watch. I found her and Viola Davis like the most satisfying as like well-rounded characters and I, I think it the movie recognizes it too because after the heist the two of them meet up again in a way that no one else does. Like they're the ones that get like the final stamp on the story once it all resolves. I do want to kind of talk about like the Gillian Flynn-ness of it. It's not set in Missouri. It does have kind of like that journalism angle that all of her stuff has in that it's about like local politics in Chicago, but it's not like about a journalist like investigating some past crime or anything. So it's kind of missing that a little bit too. It has difficult women in it, but they're not violent antagonists in any way. Like they're just like a little prickly and hurt and maybe bullying each other a little bit as they like get the heist together. But it does have preposterous twists that come in like late in the film and sort of like change everything you've seen before it um, and kind of pull the rug from under you. And I think maybe in this one, because all the other stuff was so different from gone girl and like dark places and sharp objects, like the twist kind of catch you off guard more. Like you can't see the pattern of her writing as easily. So like when the twists come, it's like, Oh, I didn't expect that. But this doesn't feel like as cookie cutter as her other stuff. Like it feels like her reaching out in a new direction. You know, we talk about like what is her style. And I think on the one hand, you know, we were talking about the twists and sort of these strong negative female characters. What I think she's actually moving into and kind of leaning into is her strength as like I was talking about earlier in regards to Gone Girl, like her strength as a screenwriter. And I think this movie has a lot in common with Gone Girl in the dialogue. It's very smart and it's very snappy. Almost, I don't want to say like Aaron Sorkin-esque. It's just smart dialogue. And it like, the scenes move forward in a like very action-oriented way. Again, I think she, you'll see her do more screenwriting for film and television. I I know she'll still write novels, but like, I think those first three novels are their own thing. Like a lot of common tropes and all that, but 
it is interesting where she's going. And I think Widows kind of highlights her strength as a writer because, like, the dialogue was, like, on point, you know, and she can tell a story. Like, the fact that she could fit all these characters, all this action, and all this story into a script for two hours and hit all the plot points, give all the characters meaningful dialogue, give them scenes that have impact, that progress the story. Like, I think that's where her real talent is. She's really good with, like, the way she writes, like, these female characters, especially in, like, a movie like Widows, where they're not, like, goofy, like a bunch of goofy women who, like have families at home and are trying to pull off a heist. That movie could have easily gone in that direction, but she kept it super, like she kept it serious. It was like a serious, like, you know, thriller. Or- but she's got humor too, is it thing? Like, exactly. But it's like, it doesn't in a way where it's not like over the top kind of goofy stuff, which I feel like in movies like this, like women get a lot where, you know, someone falls over and, you know, lands on their butt and everyone laughs that kind of weird (laughs) shit you know like they obviously like you know they get a handle on what they're doing pretty quickly and there is you know funny moments but it's not just like pure comedy which i liked a lot yeah it's the same with gone girl it's like and those two scripts i think are great because they have humor but it's smart and it's yeah yeah you said it's not goofy it's just I get the sense that she has a real, genuine, good sense of humor. Which Dark Places does not get at all. There's no humor. No, to be found right. And, that's what, and she didn't write that script. And that's why, <laughs> big reason why that movie is a turd. There's humor in Dark Places, but it's not intentional. Yeah, well. True. <laughs> I will say, too, if you want more Gone Girl, like vibes in your life there is a movie that opened on netflix i think this weekend called i care a lot uh, starring rosamund pike um and it looks like a very similar like gone girl riff where rosamund pike like i think she's scamming old people out of their like pension checks or something um and she's doing the exact same like cruelly funny um voiceover work that she does in, in gone girl so her her influence is still out there and being cashed in on it's a shame that Widows was not a bigger hit because I feel like that might have led to bigger projects in the more immediate future. Yeah, I mean, but o- overall, I think I do really appreciate Gillian Flint and like in the screenwriting aspect. And when she does pull off a twist, she really pulls off a twist. You know, what I mean, it's kind of the same with M. Night Shyamalan. Like when he gets it right with the twist, it's knocks it out of the park for me. And I do also like these really strong, vicious, nasty female characters that she can write. Hell yeah. (laughs) I dig it. I've kind of want to like read her books again. I've never read um, dark places. So I'm curious if dark places in the novel form is better than the weird movie we saw. Strong possibility. It'll at least be funnier. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what uh, she cranks out next because I liked all of it. Well, next week on this show, we are going to do a little bit of Mardi Gras. We're going to have a discussion of Black Orpheus, which is set in Carnival in Brazil. Uh, It's a classic 
film from the 50s, gorgeous piece of art on the Criterion channel. So if you if you want a little bit of Mardi Gras celebration in your life, a little bit of carnival, we will be doing that episode. Probably just talking about how sad and cold it was last week. <laughs> and um, you can check out SwampFlix.com if you want more daily reviews. I've been writing a lot lately. I'm going to start reviewing a bunch of 2021 films in the near future. So if you want to see reviews of a bunch of recent releases, check out the website. They're usually about one a day on there. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye.